0: Welcome gamers to Basement Arcade Pause Man, the show where we just hit pause, sit back, and chill. I'm your host, Ben Magnet, and today I have an amazing guest. To say that he is a legend in the video game in- industry, in my opinion, is a complete understatement. What this man has done for video games is Astronomical. And I mean that in every sense of the word. He is an author. He is a documentarian. And when I say author, he also wrote this awesome book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an in Industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Mr. Howard Scott Warshaw. How are you, sir?
1: Hey, Ben, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for coming on the show.
1: I, I appreciate it. <laughs> so, oh, it's one big appreciation fest. You can't go yeah, wrong there.
0: It, it totally it. It totally is. So, you sir are responsible for making such games, uh, Yars' Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and of course, probably the biggest name in the early '80s, ET the video game, which we all know. You've talked about this before. You were on the um, document that you were on the documentary series High Score on Netflix, um, Game Over, uh, the um, Atari documentary by Zach Penn it was pretty much all about you and your work and what happened there. And you've been also on a bunch of podcasts. So um, talking about your history with Atari, I do want to get into it. But I was hoping today we could talk a little bit what happened afterwards. Um, like I'd my, be happy
1: to talk about that.
0: Yeah. Um. Like My, my biggest question is is that after you left Atari, because you only made three games, four technically, because Saboteur, which is the game that was never finished, which did come out on the Atari Flashback Classic, which people can buy in stores now, you essentially only made four games, but your name is still synonymous with video video games. How how does it feel to be part of that? How does it feel essentially to be part of a big chunk of video game history?
1: Feels great. I mean, it's, it's a tremendous honor for me to really be that part. I mean, I was very aware at the time that what we were doing was launching a new medium. Mm-hmm. And so to be one of the uh, forebears, one of the creators of that medium and to really have had the opportunity to help define mm-hmm. uh, what it is, what it could be, what it means and what some of the rules and and uh, some of the, the basically standards are, mm-hmm. uh, if you have any standards in video games, because hopefully we're always breaking them. Yeah, it, it's huge. It makes me feel really good. It was never enough for me, but it was always a good start.
0: <laughs> yeah, and now obviously... E.T. When it comes to the game E.T., so unfortunately E.T. is very before my time. But as I was growing up, I would watch um, YouTubers and um, especially when I was a impressionable young child, uh, video game television shows, and they would just, to put it bluntly, they would demolish the the game. They'd say it's like the worst video game of all time. They would say horrible things about it. Um, when that happened, when that when E.T. started coming back to light again, say back in the early aughts and late nineties. what what were your feelings about it? Were you just like, no, I didn't make a bad game. I did the best I could. I made that thing in five weeks. Let me see you make something like that in five weeks. Or what what was your reaction generally to that? Well, I mean,
1: and I talk about this extensively in the book, of course, it's Mm -hmm. the idea that ET to me was never a failure. Okay. It was never a failure in my eyes. So people could say what they want about it. And, you know, there's there, there's a few different aspects to this right i mean first you have people who just like saying it's the worst game in history that's okay everyone's entitled to their opinion and i always respect a player's opinion mm-hmm. uh anybody who's played a game and if they don't like it i'm never going to try and tell someone it's a better game than they think or that they should like it mm-hmm. but what i do ask people a lot of times when they go hey you made the worst game <laughs> i always like to say to them oh have you played it mm-hmm. <laughs> and You'd be amazed how often people say no. And so I say, oh, so what are you basing your opinion on? Right. So that's it, you know, but there's also a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people just didn't like the game. And I get it. There's, you know, I did Saboteur, which was eventually released about 20 years later, right, on the flashback system. So if you think about it, I have the shortest and the longest development Time of any game in history right i did a five-week development on et and a 20-year development with saboteur just yeah. like i have yars revenge one of the best games of all time and et one of the worst games of all time yeah right so it's like what i'm about is range oh yeah
0: you definitely have the range and to answer your question i have played et
1: oh excellent well, I didn't yeah. hear you complaining about it, so it's no, all good. No. Uh, yeah,
0: um, unfortunately, I only um, played it for about, I want to say, maybe 10 minutes. It was at a retro gaming um, expo here in Southern California in the before times, you know, when we were able to go outside and have fun and all that jazz. And I want to say I definitely, if I ever had the chance, I want to play it again. Because I feel that growing up the way I did and growing up watching these games um, um, these shows and these people just criticizing, just saying, I mean, they're doing it for comedy reasons, but they're also doing it. Cause it's like, yeah, the ET is a bad game. And watching all these YouTube videos, I would definitely say I had a very big preconceived notion because, um, Atari games as a whole, I, cause I grew up in, I was born in 90. I grew up with in the 16 bit era and the 32 bit era. And I was there when pixel, when they went from pixels to polygons. So, seeing a game like et i mean by today's standards the graphics are crude but this was then the this was like what i call the primordial age of retro video games this is no one ever has ever done anything like this before so i would love to try and play the game again because when i was playing it i kept falling into this one damn pit that i was just trying to get out of (laughs) i got the part and then i just tried to go one way and then et just kept falling into the pit again
1: Well, you see, that was supposed to be part of the gameplay. Like a lot of what's interesting about ET. Another interesting thing about ET is that a lot of people complain about the collision detect, but people have done investigations. They've looked at the code and I'm not the one who said this. I'm quoting other people Mm -hmm. when they say, but I happen to know it's true, is that the collision detect in ET is literally perfect. It is 100% hardware collision detect. It's impossible for it to make a mistake. OK, so if you touch a part of a pit with any part of your E.T. avatar, you're going to fall in the pit. And that's the way it goes, because that's the way I programmed it, because there had to be some gameplay in the game. So navigating these some of these uh, you know, narrow passes and tricky places was part of the gameplay. Now, the fact that if I put a block, if I had a square for E.T. and people touched the pit with the block. They would get that, oh, okay, I touched it, so I'm going to fall in. But the graphics on the 2600, which are crude, they were still good enough that people personified the avatars to the point where when they touch something with their head, they figured, no, that's wrong. That's bad collision detect because I shouldn't fall in with my head. I should only fall in when I touch it with my feet. The idea of head and feet on a 2600 graphic is kind of amazing. Okay, <laughs> because If you think about it, that, and I think that's what happened is that the graphics were so good for a 2600 game that it actually distorted people's perception of how a game should work. And they made the assumption that there's something wrong with the collision detect. Actually, the problem with the game was that it motivated people to really take the characters as literal characters to the point where they expected real physics to be in play. And because of the three quarter perspective that we use. It just it hit people in a place where they didn't expect it to operate that way. So in some ways, you could say the game was too realistic for people to deal with. Yeah.
0: And to, talking about how because the graphics I, for I mean I, when I say this, I say this in the nicest way possible for a 2600 game look good. Because when you see E.T., you can tell, yes, that's E.T. There's Elliot. There's the FBI guy compared to a game say like adventure whereas your character is just a little dot on a screen and the dragons in that game look like giant ducks
1: yeah i mean those games were supposed to be more about the play they Mm -hmm. were supposed to be about that and by the way you know you don't have to apologize to me i am not sensitive about (laughs) criticism with et i've heard it all before it's uh And it's all good. And like I said, the thing is that ET always felt like a success to me because I knew when I was launching that project in the first place, I was taking an impossible task on. The idea that I delivered, and I believe I delivered a complete full debug game uh, for the 2600, it has some obscure bugs in it here and there. But most of the games that took six to 12 months to deliver also have some obscure bugs here and there. I would say it made it all the way through uh, Quality Assurance Uh, There are some issues with the gameplay, and I understand that. And I did violate what I consider to be the fundamental rule of video game design, which is that it's okay to frustrate players, but you should never disorient them. And it is true that in E.T., people do get disoriented occasionally. But I have no tuning time and things like that. So the way I always look at it is I'll put E.T. up against any other five-week development on the 2600. No problem.
0: Oh, yeah. And also, like you said, you made a completed finished game in five weeks now obviously games have games have become 10 times more advanced since back then but if you look at some debacles that we've had in the past few years cyberpunk 2077 being the prime example whereas when that game was released it was super buggy giant patches to fix it and it's unplayable compared to yours it was done it's like yeah five weeks right and they
1: took more than five weeks to do the first version of cyberpunk (laughs) Oh, of course, yeah. they had more than one person working on it, too. True.
0: Yeah, very, very true. Um, but
1: these are the trade-offs. I mean, I, one way to look at it is I did, ET was done in 8K. Mm-hmm. Really, 8K is all the code space. And there was 128 bytes of RAM to use, and that's it. So games now, it's unusual. A game could be way bigger than 8 gig now, right? I mean, you sure. could have games that are 100 gig or more just with the graphics and things like that. So at this point, games are literally a million times bigger than what I had with ET. Yeah, not only you
0: know? that, like my phone could eat a k of worth of data for breakfast. I mean, I'm probably exactly. using this k to go on Twitter and to answer a tweet back or something. But but still, the fact that you were able to do that in five weeks to me is still just astonishing. Of how you completed that right after you finished Raiders of the Lost Ark.
1: Yeah, it was a grind. That's for sure. And, and Raiders was a grind. Raiders took ten months. Raiders was the longest it took me to develop a game. Uh, it was the most work I put into a game, probably. And uh, the, I, I literally followed it right up with ET with the five week development. But you know, making a game in five weeks is—it's not a programming problem. It's a design problem. So right. my goal was to create a, to design a game I could do in five weeks and see how good it is normally you start off with an idea for a game and you see how long it takes to make it good so it's in this case i had a time limitation i tried to do the most game that i could in that time frame if i had a little more time would i make some things different probably but uh, in fact i have a whole chapter in the book that's all about you know if i had more time i break it down into if i had one day more if i had one week more if you think about the fact that if i had if I had four more days. That's like a ten percent. That's more than a ten percent increase in the overall schedule, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. And if I had if I had months more, if I really had a lot more time, I probably would have. The game. Yeah. But this was a game that I knew I could do in that time frame. So you know, and I'm a big fan of uh, delivering what you promise.
0: Yep. And I I would say you definitely did, have delivered on that promise. Um, now, going trying to scooting away from ET for a little bit. Sure. Um, after Atari. Um, the crash of 83 happens here in the United States. You leave the video game industry. Um, my cur- I, I'm curious because um, after you left the industry, did you keep an eye on video games? Like, say, 1985, when the Nintendo Entertainment System hit our shores. Were you like curious? Did you play video games after Atari? Or was your time at Atari and what happened after the crash just so... Were you just like, I'm done with video games for the rest. I'm, I don't want to look at them ever again.
1: I, no, I was definitely not done, done, done with video okay. games. I, I always kept an eye on video games. I didn't always have the latest game system, mm-hmm. but I did play games. I got back into games, you know, years later. Okay. Uh, but uh, after Atari, uh, I was kind of depressed. I was in sort of a wasteland because the thing that Atari gave me that was most valuable to me was the opportunity to use... But I mean, some people are more creative-focused and creative-type people who are more right-brained, and some people are more super-analytical math types and logic types, and they're more left-brained. And the thing is, I'm kind of both. I've always been really uh, very much a right-brain, left-brain, balanced kind of person. For someone who's as imbalanced as I am, that's one balance I've always maintained. Mm-hmm. So the thing is... I like the idea of something that is a real technical challenge with has to have a lot of moving pieces working in the right way in the right time. Manage a complex system, which is a very left brain kind of thing. But I also like creative and creative challenges. And, and I, it's very, for me to always be producing a creative project. I always have some creative thing going on. I've written many books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done movies. I've done documentaries. I, I, I like to have creative projects in addition to technical projects. And so Atari gave me the chance to do both. It was the first time in my life I really felt fulfilled professionally because I could do both. When you have a, an, an, a really intense technical challenge, like doing a video game, a real-time control system, that's a pretty aggressive technical challenge. And But most programming isn't really that tough because programming in general is just you get a spec, and you write the code that implements that spec, and away you go. And it's not that difficult. When you add the uh, additional, now program the twenty six hundred with extremely limited resources was more a more tough was tougher than that. But still, the thing, the toughest spec that you had to meet on an Atari twenty six hundred game was not any of the technical details. The toughest spec you had to meet with that was that it had to be fun. Because if you have to write a program that when somebody hits a light switch, the light goes on, well, you know if it works. And it's not a question of do I like it better. Nobody likes their word processor better than a C compiler or something like that, right? Those are purely functional pieces of software. Mm -hmm. But a game has to be fun. You can write a purely brilliant, technically perfect game execution that if it's not fun, it sucks. And that's it. That's the deal. And so to have to meet that subjective challenge in addition to the objective challenges of creating a, a functioning technical system, I love that. I just love that that thing where you have to have both. And it took me a long time. After Atari, I went kind of searching for something else that would that would pose that kind of challenge to me. I never found it until recently. So what I did for a while was i do my day job, which was usually technical because I, that would pay me and my body was still addicted to food. So that was a problem. And then I would, I would do two jobs, right? I would, I would do my, you know, kind of dry programming during the day. And I would do writing and video production, things like that at night. And I just worked two jobs for a long time until I decided to become a psychotherapist. And mm-hmm. psychotherapy is something that does mix that creative and technical challenge in a way that's very satisfying for me. It's the first time in like 30 years since Atari that I've been able to really be professionally satisfied.
0: Yeah, and I know you mentioned um, how you got into psychotherapy on a um, Arcade Attack, and I'm still amazed that you went from a programmer all the way to psychotherapy because that is just like one branch of it. It's like, that is a, that's a branch. That is a, that's a path you took, and I- I'm glad you took it.
1: It's a jump. A lot of people think it doesn't make sense. A lot of people say to me, how could you go from being a programmer to being a therapist? But what they're really saying is, you know, programmers have no people skills. So where do you get off being a good programmer and then being able to be a therapist? And what I say to them is it's not really that big a jump. In fact, if you ask me, programmers and therapists, they're really very similar because we're all systems analysts, right? It's just that I decided to move on to a much more sophisticated hardware in the human brain. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like when people look at, um, like, comic book nerds or video game nerds, which I fall into both. And they're like, oh, you don't have any people skills. It's like, I have a podcast. I interview people on the regular. What do you mean I don't have people skills?
1: Well, and there's that whole thing. And this is, you know, this is a couple of chapters in the book is about nerd culture. I have a chapter in the book I call Nerd World Country. <laughs> and in that book, I explain because I'm writing this book for people who are nerds and also for people who are non-nerds. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing that's so technical that it's not accessible to it. But that's one of the things I specialize in is taking complex ideas and information and making it accessible to people in interesting ways and hopefully fun ways. And so I go in depth into this about what are nerds like? What does nerd culture mean? Are nerds communicators? People like you're talking about, like how could a nerd become a therapist? The idea that nerds are not communicators is absurd because Programming a computer is all about language and communication, right. right? That's why they call them programming languages, not programming math problems, right? right. So, uh, but but programmers like to communicate in a very specific way, and most people don't tune into that. So they, they call programmers bad communicators because they don't communicate well with programmers. But programmers are actually extremely skilled communicators. Uh, unfortunately, they're also... Uh, very picky about how they communicate with other people, and if you don't match their expectations, they get very upset with you, and they express that very freely because they feel empowered to do so. And this creates a lot of conflict, particularly with people from marketing.
0: Right. Oh yeah, you mentioned about how uh, you because since you were a software engineer at Atari, you and marketing would just like butt heads on like what exactly to do.
1: We would butt heads. Actually, I butted heads less with marketing than most programmers did. In fact, I worked with marketing a lot more because I also have a degree in economics in addition to my technical background. So I had more of that kind of background than most programmers do. So I was more sympathetic to the problems that marketing had. I was very dismayed to find out they didn't have much sympathy for the problems that I faced and what went on. At least that was my opinion then. But I, I had some good relationships with some of the people in marketing, and but I also, as a therapist now looking back, and, and that's another major aspect of the book, is I talk a lot about the conflict that does go on between marketing and engineering, because they're very different mindsets in a company. And in fact, they kind of resent each other, right? Because engineers want to hang on to stuff until it's just right, because they don't want to put something out unless it's really good, and marketing people just want something to sell because they know that something sold gets you more money than something that isn't selling. And they just want to grab it and put it out. And there's a fundamental tension there. And it's really about people just doing their jobs and wanting to do their jobs well. But it feels like you don't want to respect what I'm doing. You just want me to cooperate with what you're doing. And so it's a misunderstanding that becomes a real conflict. And the truth is, that's not any different today than it was back at Atari. And so a lot of people have been telling me that the stuff they're reading about how I describe the conflicts that went on at Atari, uh, it's very instructive for them in their jobs today. Anybody who works in a company that has an engineering department and a marketing department, uh, they're getting a lot of goodies out of uh, what's going on with this book.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, um, you mentioned uh, the um, you have an entire chapter based on nerd culture in your book. And what I wanted to ask you is the nerd culture, I feel, has definitely changed, especially from what I noticed about the not just the attitude towards E.T., but the attitude towards Atari in general. Um, do, have you also seen this like, like shift, this paradigm shift of it being like Atari is bad, it's evil, it's like they ruined video games here in the United States to more of a more like, yeah, I mean, Atari did what they did, but that's history and we got to celebrate it. What, what's your experience with that sort of paradigm yeah. shift?
1: I've never really experienced the idea that Atari is evil and ruined everything. Uh, The idea, you know, that ET and by extension, Atari uh, ruined the industry. uh, I suppose, I mean, I've seen things, I've seen articles and media which talk about how ET single handedly destroyed the industry, which led to the subtitle of the book.
0: Which is not true. Cough, cough. I'm looking at you, ColecoVision. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right, it's not true. But what was true was that this was the first product life cycle, and right. what Atari did was they made all the mistakes that initial players do. They did all the right things to create a, a wave. See, what, to me, the real cultural shift is how Atari has kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. Like I, I talk to people today, particularly younger people, some of them have never heard of Atari. I say, you know, hey, I, you know, I've got a book about Atari, and they're like, what's Atari? Mm-hmm. They don't know. They know what video games are for sure, but they don't. They've never even heard of Atari. So there was a time where Atari was X, right? Yeah. Of video and games, people didn't call it video games. They called it their Atari. I'm going to play my Atari today, even if they were talking about playing Activision or Magic Games. They called it their Atari. It's so like Atari what, was pervasive.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like what parents says. For me, growing up, um, you didn't play the games. You played Nintendo,
1: right? Exactly. And that's and that's it was the namesake. And it was also Atari was the entity that made video games video games that introduced the world to video games and made it a mainstay in what it was. So the cultural shift is that Atari has totally lost like Disney never lost focus as like the entertainer of children and the animation king and stuff like that. But Atari was in that position. And, and lost it. they fell yeah. apart because they couldn't handle what I call the first product life cycle yeah right they made they, they, they made the big splash because there were video game systems before Atari mm-hmm. right yeah, There was iPod. Magnavox, there was a variety of others. but yeah. Atari was the first one that actually took it mainstream that, that sold in the millions yeah. instead of the thousands. Yeah. and so they were the fastest rising company in American history. And then they became the fastest falling company in American history. And and a lot of that was because there was a cultural shift. You want to talk about a paradigm shift. There was the cultural shift within Atari. And that's another topic I get deeply into in the book Mm -hmm. is the idea that there was the Nolan culture, which was about building and creating, but wasn't really about managing the property or owning it and holding it. And then there was the Warner culture that came in with Ray Kazar, which had nothing to do with building or innovating or creating, but was all about managing and controlling and doing it. There, You need to have both. You really need to understand both to be effective. But the fact is uh, Atari in its launch created some vulnerabilities because there were some blind spots that Nolan had and that the people who worked at Atari had That because no one had ever done a video game system before. Nobody really knew what to expect. Right, And then the blind spots in the Warner regime came in about not being able to innovate, not being able to move forward. So as the innovation kind of died and, and lost, it was all about uh, creating money chains and marketing channels. Uh, the public lost interest because there wasn't something new sustaining their interest. And that's another thing that led to the crash. It was the glut of crap you know, right. that came out in the system because they didn't have a way to protect the system. Mm-hmm. And it went on and it was a shame. It was a shame to see something that was that bold and that significant wither and die the way it did. That was a hard thing to live through.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, because after when this happened and you left Atari and essentially just watching Atari ever since um, as the years would go by into the 80s, into the early 90s, you had the the 5200, the 78, the 7800 no that's yeah. 7200 you had multiple well, 5200
1: and then the 7800
0: yeah you have all
1: these it different up in increments of 2600
0: yeah and then of course you get their final system the jaguar were you watching this because i i didn't know the jaguar existed on i want to say until like maybe 2000 and like 2005. And i'm like what the heck is a jaguar atari made this are you serious like i'm looking at my friends like what the heck is this thing Cause I even I grew up I was alive when the system was introduced, but Sony, Nintendo, and uh, yeah, Sony, Nintendo, and Sega
1: were they the four. Completely forefront. overshadowed it, right? Because, like yeah. you say, nobody even knew about it. It was a 64-bit system.
0: Yeah, I um, was you- ahead of
1: its time so much so yeah. that people didn't pick it up.
0: Yeah, when you were watching, a were you like you say you were like keeping an eye on the video games? Were you would you look at Atari and just like oh damn it or what how was your what was your reaction when atari was doing these things and then eventually like it folded or it became what it is today
1: well i mean what it is today is a very different entity from what was going on back then right i mean today atari is just a package of rights that floats around and then there's one company infograms a french company that actually picked up the rights and renamed their company Atari. So there is a company named Atari now because, so, I mean, Hasbro had the rights. Mattel had the rights. These rights floated around to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually someone picked it up, named their company. This was the new Atari, but this had nothing to do with the old Atari. Right. And the back library, as they say, that's always got some value. So people hang on to it. But Atari doesn't mean what it did mm-hmm. back then, right? Because it's just a different cultural phenomenon. And now you have narrow casting in the console areas because it's so expensive that people can't tolerate risk. Uh, at the beginning, it was all about doing new things. Now it's all about doing something that will sustain uh, your monetary flow because you can't afford to do something new and have it flop or everybody goes up.
0: Right. Yeah. Even when you were talking earlier about the the Bushnell regime and the Warren regime, how these companies have two different mindsets. Um, It reminds me, because there's a bunch of stories like that even today. Um, I'm I'm thinking about what's going on at EA, how when EA was first created, it's like, yeah, we're going to create new things. We're going to have fun. Same with Activision, which was founded, funny enough, by former Atari employees. And now they're in either heaps of legal litigation, Activision, or they just keep making the same thing. And it's like a studio gets like, hey, we're doing a fun thing. And EA just goes, you're on Call of Duty now. Yeah, because
1: that's what works for them. See, but what's happened is, see, one of the things that's gone on is there's been a huge uh, circling back in the industry. Think about it. So it started with console games and console games got bigger and bigger. And it was just me doing a game. And then it was me and a graphics person and a sound person doing a game. And then it'll be a few programmers and a graphics person or two. And then, a, a, and then, uh, you'd add a, a pro, a project manager at some point because now you've got enough people and it grew and it grew. And now you have hundreds and hundreds of people who are involved in a console game. It's a huge monolithic. Thing to manage and watch it go. So no one, you don't do innovation and stuff like that very often. Like there, you're just trying to keep the ship afloat. Okay, yeah. and so... But now there's handheld gaming, right? Now phone apps and things like that have created this opportunity for one person or a very small team of people to be able to do something fresh and innovate. And it doesn't cost millions and millions of dollars to do. So you can afford to take risks and take chances and find new things. That's where the innovation lives. And really solid innovations bubble their way up into console production because now they become proven concepts, which is all the console will tolerate. Okay, so it started off with a simple one person, one screen operation. It grew to the point where no individual could possibly really approach it. And then it circled back in a way to now there is a new avenue where individuals can express their creativity. And like the industry that I've loved and helped birth, uh, I, too, have circled back. Right. Because I started off entertaining nerds with the games that I made and just creating fun. And now after all those years, I've circled back and now I actually help nerds make their lives better by working with them therapeutically. So the industry came full circle. I came full circle. I guess in some ways you could say I never left, even though I was away for many years.
0: Yeah. And um, I know we're, we're kind of tying on times. And I think that's a great place. And even just to say, uh, audio listeners, I'm sorry, but I had to I have, I'm wearing an Atari T-shirt.
1: <laughs> I, I love it. I'll show you an artifact. You i had this
0: to uh, oh audio listeners he's holding up an awesome little atari mug funny enough i bought this t-shirt because it has a whole a bunch of the old atari box art on it and right before i put it on today i was like scanning i was like where's Yara's revenge where is it and i think i found it except it's right between the r the last r and atari so it's like you could see the orange outline but you don't see the the box well i've got something.
1: Yar's right over here but this cup was on my desk at Atari when I was doing Yars Revenge and all those games. So I, this is my one relic that I have saved for all the years. But the main relic that I've produced now is Once yep. Upon Atari. And anybody who's in the industry or thinking of going into the industry, uh, the feedback that I keep getting is simply that if you're if you're involved with video games, you need to read this book. And if you're not involved with video games, you'll still enjoy the book. But if you are, if you're a game nerd, this has what you're looking for. Yeah,
0: I, I call myself an amateur video game historian um the early 80s um with even the 70s the crash the what happened with the console wars and 90s that's like my favorite era of researching and just reading about so of course when this book I heard about this book I was like instantly on my Amazon wish list and once I had some once I had some money I was like cool bought it and it came in a few days ago so I'm definitely gonna be start I'm, I'm probably gonna like blaze through this on a weekend I that's how fast I read sometimes
1: excellent well, yeah. When you're through it, let me know. Maybe we'll come back and we can actually uh, you can do a review.
0: I would love to do that, um, sir. You have an open invitation if you ever want to come back on. Once I'm done reading that book, I'll send you another email. Be like, you want to come back on and talk about it because there's probably because I'm probably be like reading this and have my my legal pad next to me. So it's like, <laughs> there's a question I could ask because I was in preparation for this. I was listening to your other shows. It's like, okay, what question has no one asked him? that I can ask him.
1: Well, this has been great, Ben. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed the questions and it was great talking with you.
0: It was awesome talking with you. Um, I can't wait to get into the book. Thank you again so much for coming on. And once again, thank you for all that you did. Um, just just to like, I'm not worthy of you even more. Uh, the three Atari 2600 games I plan to own for, even, if, even though I may never own a, a 2600 in my life, I just wanna keep these games for preservation purposes are Yars Revenge, Adventure, and ET? Two of your games. Wow.
1: Well, I it's, a, it's a great honor. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Ben. Yeah,
0: every, every time I go to stores that sell 2600 games, I'm like, where's Yars? Where's Yars? Because Yars is the one I want first. I even uh, I have, a, there's a little board game we play called Moonrakers, and I call my ship the Yars Revenge because it looks like a little Yars.
1: Yars has always got a special place in my heart. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's my favorite game. Uh, it was my first game. And as I like to say, a friend of yours is a friend of mine. So it's all good.
0: Awesome. Well, once again, Howard, thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, This has been great. Uh, I wish we had more time, but unfortunately we don't. But that's totally fine. Thank you again. And for now, let us unpause. Hey, everyone. Ben Magnet here. Thank you again so much for watching and or listening to this latest episode of Base Market Pause Menu, where I sat down with legendary game designer Howard Scott Warshaw. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to end the episode with plugging our socials, so I'm here doing it right now. You can follow the show, Fake Nerd Podcast, or the mothership show, Fake Nerd Podcast, at Fake Nerd Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at fakenerdguys at gmail.com. Besides the Mothership Show, the Fickner podcast, we have a whole bunch of other shows. We have the original Base Arcade, which is our Let's Play show, Fickner's Watch, where we sit down and watch a whole bunch of uh, TV shows and discuss them. Right now, we're going through What If. And also, we have the Fickner Book Club, where we read a certain comic book and sit down and discuss it. That show is coming back soon. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, my Instagram and Twitter is BenMagnet27. And also, if you want to uh, learn more about Howard's book, Once Upon Atari How I Made History by Killing an Industry, you can find it anywhere books are sold Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, you name it. It's, if they sell books, it's probably there. You can also follow him at Twitter at HSW Warshaw, which HSW is all capitalized and the rest of his name Warshaw. So it's HS Warshaw, essentially. And also, you can go to his website, which is new New Once Upon Tari is all one word. Then you get the dot at hswarshaw.com. Once again, a huge thank you to Howard for coming on and recording this. I really appreciate it. I cannot wait to have him back on once I'm done reading the book. And for real this time, unpause.